0: Once people just look a little more deeply at what we mean by localization, they'll see that this is precisely the formula. This is the structure that can give us what we're looking for. More community and connection, more connection with nature. The problem isn't human nature. The problem is an inhuman scale and an inhuman pace and the blindness that comes from that. So it's a huge relief to realize, no, no, the human race is not greedy and aggressive by nature. We're not these stupid people who didn't care about climate change. We were trapped in a system where no one was telling us why emissions kept escalating despite our efforts in our private lives to try to reduce them.
1: we run out of excuses and we are running out of time.
2: We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe.
1: Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Extinction Rebellion
3: This is the Extinction Rebellion podcast.
2: This episode is called The Future is Local and it features two really inspiring women Helena Norberg-Hodge, whom you just heard, and Jyoti Fernandez, an organic farmer uh, working in Devon.
3: I'm Jessica Townsend, and this week I'm joined by another fresh presenter uh, from the XR movement called Mothia Rahman, who's been part of XR for quite a while. What kind of things have you done in XR, Mothia?
2: Hi, Jessica. Yeah, um, I have started um, in the autumn of 2018 uh, part of the political strategy team and then uh, in the rapid response team leading up to the April Rebellion. And then since then, I've been part of XR Muslims for the October Rebellion, part of the Faith Bridge, and part of a Gardenship Envisioning team and doing some spokes work as well.
3: Yeah, so we haven't really worked together, but I've seen you around quite a bit. And you've got a particular interest in the theme of today's podcast.
2: In localism, yeah. My other work, I've worked as a lawyer And uh, I worked with um, the community in Falkirk when they were resisting fracking. So from that level of working directly with communities, I've seen how important it is to do that kind of work.
3: Great. Well, we'll get to talk a little bit more about that. But our first interviewee today is Helena Norberg-Hodge, who is a veteran of the Green Movement. She's been working in it for over 40 years and she's the founder of the non-profit Local Futures. I have been involved
0: now for 45 years in trying to raise awareness about the destructive impact of our economic system, and I became aware of this when I had the rather unique experience of arriving in a remote culture on the Tibetan plateau called Ladakh, and it was a culture that had not been either affected by colonialism or development. They were snowed in for eight months of the year often, and for political reasons, no one had been allowed to go there in the modern era. And then suddenly this part of Tibet that belongs politically to India was thrown open to outsiders. I arrived there. I was a linguist. I learned to speak the language fluently and lived with the people. And there are not many people alive today who come in sort of in this way, to see these kinds of changes over you know, a whole generation. I learned to speak the language fluently, so I was also very aware of the psychological effect of outside pressures that arrived in the form of schooling, in the form of media and advertising, and essentially colonized people's minds with the idea that Unless you live in the city and unless you are an urban consumer, ideally white skinned with blonde hair and blue eyes, you are a backward nobody, and people will even talk about themselves as being primitive as animals because they say we don't speak the language, meaning English. So I witnessed this enormous psychological pollution as well as this remarkable thing of things coming in from the outside, having been transported for a week, something like butter, and suddenly selling in the local marketplace for half the price of local butter. So that set me on a journey to understand what's going on. Of
3: course, that has to be true, that if you're going to break in to a local market, you've got to have a price advantage. Otherwise, why would people buy the inferior product that's travelled halfway across the world. But it's surprising, because that's not sort of part of what's generally in our heads, that imported foods would have to be cheaper. No, it
0: definitely isn't, and uh, it really does mean that we have to question the very foundation of the modern economy, which is comparative advantage whereby suddenly people around the world were told it's not in your interest to produce a range of things for your own needs. You should specialize for export, specialize in what you're good at. On the surface that sounds sort of okay, but actually we have to remember that those ideas came in at the same time, as slavery and colonialism. So people were pushed away from the land, away from diversified, self-reliant production to become enslaved in huge cotton plantations or tea plantations. And before that, in the UK, people had been driven off the land through the enclosures, and they became cheap factory labor. So we have to really look at the foundations of this economy and recognize that structurally it's continued in the same direction, favoring global
3: traders and favoring the few at the expense of the many. Another myth I've come across in your work, Helena, that you debunk, is the one that agriculture at scale is actually better than small farming.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, because that's like, for me, the central Fundament of rethinking the economy is to understand the food system, to understand, first of all, that there's nothing as important as food production. There's nothing else that we produce that everybody needs every day of their life. And ideally, it would be fresh and nutritious and to have policies that for a long time have actually been separating us further and further from the sources of our food because the the dogma has been... More global trade is better for jobs, is better for making greater wealth for our country, and in fact, it's linked more and more to creating insecurity and poverty and unemployment and promoting food production that is inefficient, couldn't be more inefficient. First of all, this means encouraging larger and larger monocultures for export. Monoculture is inherently anti-nature, it's so unnatural. When that was first brought in after the Second World War, literally with the chemicals that had been used as bombs, when those chemicals were brought in and the large-scale industrial monocultures, it was never more productive. The efficiencies of scale that people have been hearing about are the efficiencies of being able to produce food with fewer people. In other words, the efficiency was to destroy jobs, and in many cases at that point, those jobs were not very pleasant because already because of slavery, colonialism, and large you know, discrepancies in wealth, many people had been sort of either type of you know, enslaved servant to large landowners or literally slaves. So when you have people standing all day, bending over like a machine in a cotton plantation or in a wheat field or whatever, then bringing in machinery does look like progress. But actually what was brought in was hideously wasteful of land and water, very unproductive. We could take any two pieces of land in the world And if we were allowed to demonstrate one piece of land with highly diversified production and the other one with monoculture, the diversity would always be able to be more productive. But it requires more people on the land to do it properly. It also requires, among other things not having the stupidity of big blind machines that will pick every apple regardless of you know whether only half of them are ripe and then often burn and throw away a good proportion of the crop it of course requires also you know with when it comes to animal farming you couldn't think of anything more toxic anything more wasteful you create out of this valuable fertilizer from animals you create toxic effluent you know that poisons water poisons people you create conditions for pandemics and viruses as we're seeing again and again so i know,
3: I know Tony, that yeah. the fuel to transport it across the world is fossil fuels which are, are part of what is ruining uh, our climate and uh, ecology
0: i suppose one of the most important messages would be exactly that to the xr community Please help us raise awareness about the fact that on a daily basis, food is crisscrossing the world. Routinely, governments are exporting the same product that they import. So the UK exports as much milk and butter as it imports. The US exports over a billion, now I think it's actually a billion and a half tons of beef and veal, and turns around and imports a billion and a half tons of beef and veal. Now, that's going on routinely. Importing and exporting the same product, the most kind and gentle and best way to systemically reduce emissions would be to stop that madness. It could be done almost overnight and it would have a huge beneficial impact, as we've seen a little bit of now with COVID. However, it's not just that. Every day, from Europe, from North America, from Australia, food is flown to China to be processed and flown back again. Fish is flown over to be deboned. Shrimps are flown from the UK to Thailand to be peeled. Apples flown from the UK to South Africa to be washed and flown back again. Nuts are flown from Australia to China to be cracked open and flown back again. The logic of this is that as a global player, as a global business, you are pushed into this because you are forced to look everywhere around the world for the cheapest labor. And this is the logic of this insane system. And so from my point of view, you know, the most important thing is that we wake up to the structures of this system and see that in terms of reducing emissions... The global food economy is absolutely the most obvious and the most important and urgent to change, but we will find that in manufacturing clothes, in literally clear-cutting ancient growth forests and swapping timber, that's also been going on. I found that slate from China cost a tenth of the price of slate from Wales. Right next to where slate is being mined. So, we're, we're in this absolutely insane situation of this unnecessary trade, which is completely linked to climate change and completely linked to the widening gap between rich and poor.
3: Part of your big picture is an emphasis on localism. So, would you mind explaining to us what that means and why you see it as an antidote to globalization?
0: yeah well it 's I think the reason i i 've been fairly alone in promoting this you know from a global perspective and so on is that the absolutely central structural thread of globalization as driving up poverty, driving up emissions, and through it driving up divisiveness and prejudice and fear fear of the immigrant, fear of the other. I've seen it in my own native country of Sweden. And I think, you know, so because I've been aware of these trade treaties for a very long time and I've seen the impact from Sweden to Bhutan to the U.S., I've been warning about that globalizing trajectory and and a very clear, very obvious antidote is to strengthen local economies instead, to start looking at how can we reduce those food miles, how can we start building a much more balanced economy where most countries decide, yes, it makes sense to have a diversified food production where most of our basic needs for food are met within our region, within our country. It's so obvious. It's such common sense. But why hasn't it been promoted more consciously and and why has the environmental movement not been doing so as a primary objective... From my point of view, it's been because they, as big business got involved in the environmental movement, which they did particularly with big meetings like the Rio meeting in 92, and I knew the man who organized that, his name was Maurice Strong, and he was actually well-intentioned. He was working with Al Gore, and they were seriously concerned about climate, but neither of them, as mega-businessmen, were going to be looking critically at the role of big multinational businesses as the main drivers of an economic trajectory that's disastrous. And this in turn then actually through some well-intentioned people, many of them well-intentioned, has influenced a more narrow focus on symptoms So at the Rio meeting, that's what came out of it, a shift away from what I had seen very clearly in the 70s, which was clarity across the world that we needed policy change. We needed decentralized renewable energy. We wanted to move away from this fossil fuel dependence and from nuclear power. And there was a huge demand for that. But by the time that the Rio meeting came in, there was suddenly this focus on sustainable development and then treating, among other things, people from the industrialized countries were told, if you bring in your environmentalism, you're an eco-fascist, of course in these poor countries they need development. And that was the forerunner to the idea that through globalization we're going to now move our industries to poor countries
3: practice, what does localization mean? What do you think people should be doing now and they could do even in the global north to help improve the situation? Because we're a long way away from our indigenous roots
0: here. Yes, exactly. No, I think there is so much that we can do and there's so much that's already being done. So as people have woken up to the problems with these ridiculous food miles, and as they've started becoming interested in more fresh, nutritious food, all around the world there has been a growing local food movement where suddenly groups of people have come together. Sometimes it's a group of consumers that connect with a particular farm. Sometimes there have been co-ops that are linking up what I'm calling the co-op of the future, which is a collaboration between producers and consumers. Not just a consumer co-op trying to get a better deal out of the global market or a group of producers trying to get a better deal out of the global market. When you go that way, you end up in this competitive race with the giants. And it's very hard to stay genuinely ecological, genuinely ethical, and genuinely able to see the impact on the workers of your actions. So anyway, what we have is a shortening of distances. We have producers and consumers coming together in various strategies. It's become linked to also creating a general preference for supporting locally independent businesses, particularly those that are providing essential services or essential products. You have local finance for these types of businesses and for building more local economic activity. From this, there has been the awareness that when you support an independent local business in your city or town or, you know, village, you're actually helping to enrich the entire community. The local bookshop that will use this local marketing people and local accountants and local printers whatever, all of that helps the money to circulate in your area. Also, I want to make it very clear that for us, localizing is not about reducing everything to some absolute limit of, you know, 10 miles, 50 miles, 100 miles. It's about a process of shortening distances. It's about, in many cases now in the industrialized world, people are talking about, let's have a goal of having something like 80% of the food in our region come from the region or at least from within our own country as part of the localization process it's often a huge improvement if you're buying your apples from the UK or even from Europe rather than buying them from Argentina or China so and then the same with your garlic the same with your wheat so there is it's a process of being aware of where things are coming from now being aware of how hugely beneficial it is for for climate for reducing emissions, because we're not only talking about the CO two emissions. As we know, these animal farms, you know, factory farming is one of the most toxic, polluting things. We've got things being refrigerated as they're being flown back and forth across the world. We have the plastic packaging, which is you know creating mountains of waste, destroying the sea. So, it's a real win 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 strategy.
3: And I think you do put an emphasis on that word process, don't you? It's not as if we can just flick a switch and suddenly be completely local. That will probably involve societal breakdown, which is something we're trying to avoid.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it's, but it's also above all what we're so desperate to get out to people is that. We need to be more aware that we have a choice now after COVID to either support this, what people call business as usual path, but actually we need to be aware that the term business as usual, the term status quo is very misleading because the status quo of the business as usual is moving rapidly in the wrong direction. It's linked to the fundamental problems of this economic system and it's, taking the form now of this boys' game of competing to get to Mars to fight over scarce resources. It means trawling the seabed all around the world for scarce minerals, mining around the world to create techno solutions that are systemically going to reduce livelihoods and genuinely empowered meaningful ways of life for the majority of the human race.
2: That was really good to hear from Helena. It's really good to reflect on, on the history. She gave us a, a long sort of time frame of, of the work she's been doing and really good for now to think about how good intentions can be manipulated or co-opted Um, so that we don't always realise the aims and objectives we start with.
3: I really like that about her, actually. She's quite generous, isn't she? So some of the people that she talks about who have, she thinks, taken missteps, she doesn't attribute with having bad aims, necessarily, just of her having been a bit deluded by the system that exists now. I think that fits in with XR's values. I find it a really good fit and quite inspiring that we don't, blame and shame. Sometimes it's really hard not to do that, of course. It's also interesting that she's got such a long-term kind of view of what's gone on. And although her ideas today seem so current, and, you know, with things like people farmers markets and artisan bread and and that kind of thing. It's easy to forget that she's been plugging away for 40 years and uh this is her moment really.
2: And I guess it's um good for us in exile to reflect on that have some humility that this has been going on for such a long time and it seems from what she was saying 1992 was such a key moment. You know, just to go back to that time when um, when, when, there was that big move towards uh, environmental sustainability. And instead, we've been on the back foot instead because we got co-opted by this idea of sustainable development, which brought the economic and allowed the economic to trump the environmental all the time. And we've been fighting against that instead.
3: More recently, I heard her talking as part of uh, a massive event on w- World Localization Day. And there were so many people who were on board that, uh, some massive figures like Jane Goodall, Satish Kumar, our own Gail Bradbrook, Noam Chomsky. I think the Dalai Lama even gave it uh, his blessing. So it seems like she is flowing with the tide now.
2: Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and now we've got another um, really inspiring woman who was um, speaking on that uh, World Localization Day. Joti Jyoti Fernandez, um, She's part of the Land Workers Alliance and also part of Via Campesina, um, the Worldwide Peasants Organization.
1: You get higher yields on some crops for wheat and some other commodity crops using industrial farming methods on a per hectare basis. But if you look at agroecological farms, um, you don't have all the costs associated with that. You don't have All of the nitrate fertilizers that are spread onto the fields and they cause tremendous amounts of nitrous oxide pollution, which contributes to climate change. You don't have the herbicides and pesticides that pollute waterways and kill insects. And you don't have all the heavy machinery that destroys uh, soil or wildlife as well. Um, And so when you look at agroecological farming, you just don't have all those costs that factor into what happens with producing our food. And when you have a small scale farm, you have the ability to layer things on in your farm. It's not just a big monoculture of one kind of crop. You have the ability to have trees with animals underneath or um, you know multiple layers of crops growing in the same field, or you can have a mixed farm where you have lots of different things um, working in rotation. So that those multiple yields, even if it's lower on a per hectare basis for one single crop, actually add up to become more of a yield per hectare. And with industrial farming globally, that produces 30% of global food supply, but that's a tremendous amount of wastage, and the majority of the environmental destruction happens with this industrial farming. And it uses 70% of agricultural resources to produce only 30% of our food supply. So that's incredibly inefficient.
3: So no, so no pesticides, no herbicides, and mixed crops but with with decent yields and and living in harmony with nature presumably
1: yeah and you can employ more people per hectare with agroecological farming you know a lot of what substitutes all these chemical inputs and agrotoxins is human labor and human knowledge so you can have a lot of people working and they might be weeding by hand they might be just paying attention to what's going on so that you can mitigate the problems with pests and disease by, you know, being aware of what's happening and, you know, companion planting or using integrated pest management and all sorts of methods that rely on human knowledge and understanding of our natural environment. And all of these require humans to be a part of the system, but they also provide employment, which is a really important thing. And
3: not hideous employment as well. So, you know, I'm sure some of it is quite hard work, but uh, presumably being in the natural world working with it must be quite pleasant most of the time
1: yeah it's hard work but it's also satisfying there's a lot of conditions that the global economic system puts onto farming that make it so that you know sometimes people don't get a fair price for what they're producing because farmers who are producing things well are forced to compete against industrial farming where, you know, they cut loads of corners in terms of exploiting labor and, you know, not looking after the environment or squashing loads of animals into cages. It's really factory farmed animals when you have to compete against that, it does lower the price that you get for producing things well. And that's really unfair competition. So we are in a situation where the world needs to recognize that farmers that are trying to produce things agroecologically, in order to have decent work, to get a fair price for what you're producing, there needs to be something that levels that playing field. You know, it needs to stop that kind of industrial farming that's highly exploitative and actually destroying our future for us, you know, future food supplies for future generations. That needs to be stopped immediately. And, uh, you know, real respect given to farmers who are producing in harmony with the natural environment. So, how
3: did you come, if you don't mind my asking you a personal question, to be a farmer? Because you've been doing it for quite a while, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I've been farming for twenty years. Um, my grandparents' generation were farmers, um, but my parents weren't. And I decided to go into farming largely because I wanted to raise my kids with me and instead of putting them in childcare. So it was, you know, a really basic decision. Um, and it, it is a job where I could have my children with me. I wanted to try and live a more environmentally low impact lifestyle so it'd be off the grid so we don't have mains electricity uh, my husband built our house so we could use ecological materials and you know farming is a job that we could do alongside living like that so you know it was about trying to find a way we could balance having the abundance of what we wanted and what's really important to us is shelter <laughs> being with our family and good food with an uh, occupation that can give us enough of the money we need for the things that you need money for in life.
3: So to get back to the sort of more political side of your work. So having been a small farmer and bringing up your what sounds like adorable family in quite a simple way, you are now a Westminster lobbyist, Jyoti. So how did that happen?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I spend a lot of time now. Um, This whole week I've been talking to lords and ladies, peers in the House of of Lords, um, because the agriculture bill is there. I also spend quite a lot of time talking to people at the Food and Agriculture Organization on an international level, and I think it, it comes from understanding that where we got to with you know having a piece of land where we could live and provide for our local community wasn't easy, and that actually, um, in solidarity with other farmers around the world, all 200 million that are in our movement, and almost half of the world's population are peasant farmers, and many, many ecosystem-dependent people around the world, the global economy is very difficult to exist within, and the whole monetary economy is very difficult. And we needed to lobby and campaign to make sure that people who did want to live more ecosystem-dependent lives had access to resources, land, water, seeds, financial resources, research and development budgets, correct planning laws or, you know, laws that allow you to have whatever you need to be able to live this kind of life. Mm.
3: So would um, you mind, just for Extinction Rebellion people who maybe like me, don't know what's going on, my understanding is that Brexit, like COVID in many areas, is kind of giving you an opportunity to reset the rules under which agriculture works. Presumably, the government has brought its own kind of framing to that, though. So for you, what are the important things at stake and what are you fighting for?
1: Well, the way the system was set up for supporting farming in this country pre-Brexit was based on European Union policies, and farmers were paid on the basis of how much land they owned without many rules just a handful, but not many, about how they farmed or what they produced. And um, now when we're leaving the European Union, there's an agriculture bill that's going to fundamentally change that so that it changes how farmers are paid and supported for the farming that they do and it's largely changing in a positive direction the bill is really quite good in saying that farmers will be paid for all the public goods they deliver that's government speak (laughs) but you know it's looking after the environment restoring biodiversity putting loads of trees onto farms looking after the soil mitigating climate change all these fantastic things and we're in a process of trying to make that even better so I spend a lot of time talking to government to civil servants in DEFRA about what these new schemes should look like, what sort of things it should be encompassing. And then, you know, we're in the process now of trying to get different um, lords to put amendments forward to try and fix lots of the bits and pieces. You know, a lot of that's about taking climate change much more seriously that even though it's mentioned, we didn't feel like it needs to be at the forefront of activity with a huge budget to deal with how we deal with emissions from the food system. And, you know, huge amounts of money towards biodiversity restoration. But we also want to see things that have to do with bringing people into contact with the natural environment. And that's not in the bill as much as we'd like to see, you know, about having farms near cities where people can access organic food at an affordable price and learn all about nature and why it's important, learn how to eat seasonally, you know, um, learn more about healthy diets, you know, how to eat more fruit and veg and less factory farmed meat and, and, you know, that kind of thing. And so we're bringing these issues into it and also ensuring that there's adequate attention to it all, because if we're going to have a future food supply for future generations. We absolutely have to pay attention to this. And um,
3: what's your feeling? I mean, with people talking about adaptation, there is a lot to talk about how fragile the food system is and Britain is importing massive amounts of food um what you would take as somebody more at ground level
1: yeah i mean i think you know covid did show that people really wanted a local food supply they wanted to feel secure they wanted to know there's people down the road producing food that they could get that food from but you know in some ways the global food supply did sort of hold up and supermarkets you know after a while they adjusted and they sorted it out but that's not really a way we should be going in the future. We've got to deal with the fact that there will be future food sh- shocks. I mean, that's inevitable. That there will be too much of what's going on with the mass production out there is an incredibly fragile system, and it's destroying the natural resource base that we need for agroecological production in the future. So, you know, they need to take a cold hard look at making sure we have enough of a domestic food supply that comes from localized sources. That there's a lot of diversity, you know, we believe a lot in diversity, diversity on the farm in what happens there, diversity in the types of crops that are grown using the tremendous resources of agro diversity that we've got out there, the different sorts of apple trees and different sorts of wheat seeds and, you know, all these heritage varieties of things that give us resilience, but also diversity in farming models. We've got to have small scale farms and, you know, bigger farms, no factory farms, <laughs> but, you know, enough, going on out there that we're not putting all our eggs in one basket. We'd like to see 80% of our domestic food supply produced in the UK. And And what is it at the moment? um, It's about, well, it depends on how you look at it. It's about 60%. They have different ways to measure it.
3: Okay. Well, that doesn't seem to be asking for the moon on a plate. (laughs) It seems like we could aim for that. So you're working really hard within the existing system. And it seems like you're very positive about, you know, moving forward. Looking at the bigger picture, if you were kind of queen of the world, what do you think the major things are that get in the way? You were saying how hard and how hamstrung you feel as a small farmer by the kind of rules which are set up for big setups. How would you change things? Helena was talking about the trade treaties is that part of what your problem is or or what
1: well one of the big things that needs to be done is breaking up the huge multinational corporations that really control global food supply let's
3: <laughs> do that to <Judy>. do <laughs>
1: yeah. let's definitely do that <laughs> I, mean, I mean to be honest we'd solve the majority of the problems if we really broke up that concentration of control that corporate control because it's those companies that are largely out just to gain money from the food system you know, and as I said before, you know, it's only 30% of global food security they're providing while just dominating the resource base that's there for agriculture. And they really spread false narratives, um, things like that GMO crops are good for the climate and, you know, we need them in order to spare land for nature and things like that, where they just get these lobbyists, you know, with silver tongues trying to spin very false narratives that actually work in the exact opposite direction to what we need for a better food system. You know, those are, those are the companies that are responsible for the factories. Farms for the tremendous amount of wastage of using, you know, soya and grain and destruction of the rainforest that ensues from using all that soya and grain in animal feeds. Those are the same companies that are responsible for exploiting workers and, you know, huge amounts of pesticides and herbicides. So if we broke up that concentration, it, it would really probably solve the, solve the problem. <laughs> but um, you know, the global trade agreements that are out there really foster that concentration of corporate control because the farms that can afford to export all the way across the planet um, are the larger farms, the, the more industrial farms that can produce monocultures of things that look very uniform and can be shipped across the planet. And when you've got commodities that can be shipped across the planet, they often use the best agricultural resources in whatever country they're producing them in to to produce those export crops. And that displaces small-scale farmers from access to the best agricultural land for producing food for themselves and for their local communities in an environmentally sensitive way. And it often pushes those people into marginal lands. So for example, you know some really rich land that might have been used by people in a village or you know indigenous people to grow their crops for their own subsistence in their local markets, and they get displaced by big plantations growing. You know it could be coffee, it could be bananas, it could be sugarcane, um, soya, whatever it is, and they then have to move into more marginal areas where which are often where a lot of the biodiversity is, and and have to seek subsistence living within those areas and so you know all of these things that corporations say where you more intensive farming uses less land so we can spare a lot of land for nature absolutely false we use more land we cause more destruction of the natural environment when we do this kind of farming
3: we've talked about the uk but you're plugged into kind of global network of local farmers (laughs) So a little bit of a sort of dichotomy there. And it sounds like the UK is kind of progressing a bit. But are there other areas where you either have great news stories or really heartbreaking stories of what's happening with farmers?
1: I mean, UK is progressing a bit, I like to say, but at the moment we're doing trade deals and the trade deal with the US is particularly destructive. As I was saying, you know, we need to break corporate control and that'll actually cause more corporate control of our food and farming system. And um, it puts UK farmers in a really difficult position because actually if the subsidy payment here is only going to support farmers that are farming um, using environmentally friendly methods and putting nature back onto their land. And we allow cheap imports, you know, on grown on huge farms in America that allow pesticides and herbicides to much higher levels than are allowed here in the UK um, and have mega factory farms, much bigger with worse animal welfare conditions than you get here. And that's going to undercut UK farmers and mean that. Actually, they'll start going out of business and supermarkets will be filling their shelves with this very poor quality food. So, Jyoti, somebody who's a
3: bit disenchanted with modern life and is looking towards a more simple land-based life, what would you say to them?
1: I think it's a viable option to actually look into becoming a farmer or a forester, and having a career based in land management, you know, where you look after the natural environment, and we can restore biodiversity, you know, it's a basic human need. um, And it's something that if you get trained up and join with other, you know, young farmers or older farmers, if you prefer, that you can learn the skills and you can have a way to create a financially viable business. You have to be a bit creative about it. You have to have some work ethic behind you, but it's a really rewarding career and you can get involved with the Land Workers Alliance if you live in the UK or with Via Campesina in whatever country you happen to be in and meet other people who are returning to the land or working on the land and trying to make a viable livelihood because we need more farmers for the future.
3: So if you were a young person interested in this lifestyle, what would you encourage them to do as a way of sort of tasting it?
1: There's an organization called WOOF, um, Willing Workers on Organic Farms, where you can volunteer on farms anywhere in the world or in lots of places in the world and meet other people that are getting into farming and learning skills and find out different ways to do things. That You can also do training courses. Um, there's like Farm Start programs and incubator farms and there's land trusts like the Ecological Land Cooperative um, in the UK here where you can start to get a foot in the door and gain those knowledge and skills and then also be with others who are you know getting small plots of land and trying to start businesses.
3: I love joti's down to earth practical approach. It's quite a good follow on I think to Helena's very global big picture description of how localization works and jote is full of the practical difficulties and how much hard work it is, but also the joy of it. I think you were right when you introduced them. I do find them both really. Inspiring. I I love the detail that Jyoti brings about the day to day issues of trying to live agroecological life in the UK.
2: Yeah, she was really uh, passionate, and uh, I loved her both working on the land and also bringing in the um, higher level advocacy work that she's doing as well. And just reflecting on my own experience, I guess from my own perspective, um, I have Bengali heritage. I found it. Really interesting that, you know, she had Indian heritage and she was in England working as a farmer. And then on the other side, you had um, Helena, who has gone to India and uh, had her experience there. And I think, you know, these cross-cultural experiences and ways of understanding the world and working in the world are, are really important for reflecting on and seeing how we, yeah, how, how our cultures are richer for this uh, transboundary working
3: I've learned a lot during this podcast, both about food production and about farming. And I personally feel that I need to learn a bit more how to produce my own food. And with the challenges of the world coming up, that we all need to look into localism and what's happening in our area. But when I was talking to you about the programme, you pointed out that it isn't just localism doesn't just apply to the rural situation.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about how how we live has changed so much and how so many people are now living in an an urban environment and looking at how how we can look at community economic development from the urban perspective as well often when we think about organic food um, it can also seem for some people like a status symbol it's quite expensive and so on and it's so it's meeting um, some might say middle-class aspirations and then how do we then look at localism that is working and meeting the needs of deprived communities as well? And Preston is a really interesting uh, model. Um, some call it the Preston model, where it kind of reached rock bottom. And the city council decided to do something about it by focusing on keeping the money local, focusing on anchor institutions, and changed its legacy for its people by by looking at community economic development Um so I think that's a really interesting perspective and uh, example to look at um, in Preston. Joe, to use this term ecosystem dependent lives because we now sort of have our lives dependent on debt and and separated from the land. And so how we can think about the urban places connected to the to its bioregion. And um, so that's another term that's used a lot by bioregionalism which is looking at how do we make our lives sustainable within the local area or the local bioregion.
3: Something I did just last weekend actually was I went over to Tottenham to a very new garden. This is on a different scale to the one that you were talking about but it was between a bit of sort of scrubby land between some tower blocks and uh, someone who used to work with XR Doctors had set up a A garden there and the kids came out of the tower blocks and they were working with us as we were kind of transplanting seedlings and that kind of thing and it exile has such trouble reaching both diverse and working-class communities and that seems really a way forward by going to those communities and instead of expecting them to come into our space. Thank you so much uh, for joining me on this podcast, uh, Mothia. And thank you, the audience, for listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I've been Jessica Townsend.
2: And I've been Mothia Raman.
1: We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time.
2: We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe.
1: Change is coming. Whether you like it or not.